Thresholds Radio with your host, John Stevenson. Recording a UFO action. And there in the darkness, on the ground, knocking on the walls, something crawling towards me. It's obvious that she had been stabbed. Why? Oh my god! Are you seeing this? To a formation forming. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. On tonight's show, we have Linda Godfrey. That much more right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Thresholds Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-Info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com. Welcome back to Thresholds Radio. Right now on the phone, we have Linda Gottfried. Welcome to the show, Linda. Hello. I'm really pleased to be here. Uh, we're uh, very happy to have you here. Like I was telling you off air, I posted on Facebook, I'd be talking with you with an amazing response. So you've got a lot of fans out there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your amazing research for people that don't know what you do? Well, I guess um, many people consider me a foremost authority on the offbeat topic of unknown upright canines. Um, often referred to as werewolves. I prefer the term man-wolves or wolfmen or even dogmen to that one. But I've been researching and tracking these things and, and uh, listing reports for 20 years now. Uh, it all goes back to the early 1990s when I started as a newspaper reporter for a southeastern Wisconsin newspaper known as The Week. And, you know, sometimes it just seems like it's in the stars that these things are going to happen to you because I had absolutely no ambition to become involved in the field of cryptozoology or to study things that look like werewolves. I didn't even really believe that such a thing existed. But, when, you know, in my own hometown, it always starts in your own backyard. <laughs> exactly. You know, and in my own hometown, um, somebody tipped me off that people who walked or rode or lived around a two-mile country lane outside of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, known as Bray Road, were reporting seeing something that reminded them of a werewolf because it was a shaggy-haired creature that stood six to seven feet tall, um, had a long muzzle, full set of canine teeth, pointed ears on top of its head, its eyes glowed yellow or yellow-green in the headlights, which is a typical canine eye shine. Um, the thing was that it walked or ran on its hind legs. And it also was seen using its paws in ways that you wouldn't expect a canine to. For instance, holding up a piece of roadkill to its mouth rather than you know just bending over and chowing down like you'd expect a canine to do. Or... Um, carrying chunks of roadkill in its forelimbs as it ran on its hind legs, things like that. So I laughed, you know, as, <laughs> as I'm sure everybody did. It just sounded so outrageous. And in my own, Elkhorn's the county seat of Walworth County, but it's not a very big town. And, you know, so it the rumor was spreading pretty quickly. Well, 
I found out that the people who were reporting this were calling the county animal control officer and saying, I saw this thing. I don't know what it was, but if there was such a thing as a werewolf, this is probably what it would look like. And that piqued my interest because, uh, to my knowledge, people who were trying to pull a stunt or hoax something did not generally go and out themselves to the authorities because, you know, you're essentially committing public fraud. You could be charged with, if you're jumping out on a road in a a gorilla suit or something, you could be charged with uh, endangering the public safety, you know, and as uh, that poor schmo in... Was that Montana? Montana, Montana right. <laughs> recently proved, you know, it's also can be very hazardous to your own health. And I thought, well, you know, these people really believe that they saw something. So um, I visited the animal control officer, and not only could he not explain what they were seeing in any way that made any sense to me, um, he had a manila file folder marked werewolf. Now, when you have an animal control officer with a file folder, an official file folder marked werewolf, that's news anywhere. Oh, exactly. My gosh, I, I didn't think they'd ever admit that. Well, I saw it. You know, it disappeared later. It's sort of interesting. It showed up on uh, one of the TV show, earlier TV shows that, that were done, and I got all excited and called the sheriff's department and asked if that was the actual file folder, and he said, no, we just faked it for them. So that shows you, you know, don't believe everything you see on, on those TV shows. Yeah. Um, but anyway, at the time, he did have it. I saw it. And he handed over the names and phone numbers of the people who had been calling in. And when I began going out to start interviewing them, um, it surprisingly, I did not think they were crazy or making anything up. They seemed legitimately concerned, sincere, often still frightened, and they ran the gamut, you know, of age, gender, occupation, you know, everything from blue-collar to white-collar to farmers, um, elderly factory workers on their way home, young single mothers, junior high kids. I mean, and they weren't any, it wasn't any group that was in collusion with one another, you know. It was just really puzzling to me. And so... I remember talking to the editor about it, and my opinion was that even if it was all illusion, the fact that we had somewhere between, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten different reports that had occurred within a certain time frame right around this area, you know, and that seemed significant. But I said, I remember saying, even if it's just some big wild dog or something, people have a right to know that there's a dangerous animal in the area. And even if it's just legends and stories that, you know, people are exaggerating, well, then we're seeing folklore in the making. And folklore, I think, even if it's erroneous, if it's stories that people are telling one another, you know, that's sort of the basis for our future literature and, and many other things. So it was, I felt that it was important to at least get the stories down, too, you know, because then you have this body of, stories that that's actually being told around local campfires and and that is how folklore gets born so we went ahead and ran the story and within two weeks it went national um inside edition came out i was being interviewed by newspapers and radio stations and tv stations from one coast to another and the thing that happened the most surprising thing that happened out of that was that people started 
locating me at the newspaper and sharing their own reports, not just Wisconsin, but all over the country and the world. I mean, I received reports from as far away as France and the Virgin Islands, people saying, this is no joke. You know, I saw this thing so many years ago, or my uncle saw this, or, you know, we know here that it does exist, that kind of thing. And It's like I told you I saw something when I was younger. We were talking off air. Right. You get that kind of thing. When people know you're into it, they just just get on. They're honest with you, and they tell you things that they normally wouldn't discuss. Exactly. And that's how a lot of the reports still, I mean, 20 years later, I'm still getting reports. And so many of them say, you know, I've been sitting on this for three years or five years or 15 years. And just, you know, I had told one person, and they told me I was crazy, so I just shut up. But as long as I know you're collecting reports... You know, I'll share. It's just good to talk to somebody who knows I'm not crazy. And they're always, oftentimes they've found one of my books or maybe a relative or somebody has heard of my web my websites and pointed them to me, um, that kind of thing. So that also speaks in a way to me that people are being truthful because, um, you know, it's just the, the hoaxers tend to be a lot different. With it. it was always last night and... You know, they they poked it with their silver-headed cane, and there was green eyeball fluid spurting everywhere. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, that's that sort of thing. They're they're often kind of easy to pick out. Do you but, find you get a lot of uh, hoax, or are you getting more legitimate things? I'd say somewhere some percentage in the high nineties are sincere, legitimate people, but there's a certain small percentage, you know, that that will. Um, I don't know if they're trying to provoke me or just see seeing if they can slip something through you know or what and i'm sure that a couple have i don't claim to be infallible i try and vet things as as best i can i did work 10 years for that newspaper interviewing two to three people a week about various other topics i think during those 10 years i only did i did the one big article on the beast of bray road that was my own term that i invented and then a few follow-up stories. But the rest of the time, it was just about all the things you would normally see in a county newspaper. And I got pretty used to talking to people and getting a sense for when they were putting me on and that kind of thing. And also, I like to point out that the very first Monster Quest episode on the History Channel was based on my second book on the topic. The first one was The Beast of Bray Road, uh, Tailing Wisconsin's Werewolf. The second one was called uh, Hunting the American Werewolf. And that first episode of Monster Quest was called American Werewolf. And what they asked me to do was to round up a bunch of witnesses that uh, were within easy travel distance. They didn't want to pay people to you know, ride, fly across country or anything. And then they brought in uh, just a top-shelf um, polygraph expert from Minneapolis and he was tough. I he he scared. I sat in on all of them, and I mean, he he really knew his beans about what he was doing. And we had seven or eight witnesses. We had more witnesses than we could fit on the final show. All of them passed with flying colors, with Whoa. no evidence, no evidence of deception. That's that's great. That's what you want to hear. Right, right. And some of them, the producers were a little dubious over a couple of them. Um, and to their surprise, they also passed with no problem. The other thing that um, I found interesting was that I initially was a little leery of asking these witnesses, you know, because I felt like I was sort of accusing them of lying or something if they would take polygraph tests. None of them took offense. They all said, well, sure, I know what I saw, and I'm not afraid to take any test you've got. They they weren't um, 
insulted or intimidated at all. So you're finding everything to be pretty well credible here. You're not, because some of these fields, you know, my gosh, most of what you hear is actually ends up to be a hoax, but you're finding the exact opposite. This, Well, of, re- of reports that I've gotten, most of them are. You know, certainly there are some that are off the wall. You know, and like I said, I'm sure one or two have slipped through. And a couple I've realized later and kind of obliquely pointed it out in a later book, you know. But um, you just really have to be surprised at how many people, sincere people, have had these uh, encounters. And that tells me there's something to them. You know, I don't pretend to be a scientist or to understand what it is. Uh, I'm not a supreme occultist, although I have studied various areas of of parapsychology, you know, to understand it. But um, there can't be this many people that I'm still receiving reports 20 years later, um, usually averaging one a week or so. You know, that's a lot of reports, a lot. What about, you know, when you think werewolf, somebody in my age group, we think, you know, those monsters that rip everybody apart and howl at the moon. Do you get reports where people have physically been attacked or hurt or, you know, things like that, or just encounters where they see something? Well, there are a fair number of reports where the creature chases their car. I've had a couple where the cars were scratched. And I saw scratch marks, but you can't prove, you know, really what made them. But but, um, I do get... Yeah, I've had many, actually many reports where they at least chase the car or where people are encountering them out in the open. The creature chases them. They feel that it would attack them, that it's angry at them, that it would uh, like to eat them, but it never does. It gets them to a point where they're sure it's about to pounce on them and then it just runs off into the brush time after time after time in unrelated incident after unrelated incident, you know, in areas far separated from one another this is the very, very consistent modus operandi that the creature employs. And in 20 years, I've only had, now this, and this doesn't count, I mean, I see things, you know, on other people's websites once in a while, you know, that um, are reported by others. But I'm just, I'm talking about the reports that have come to me over 20 years. And out of all of those, I've only had one person that um, was really physically harmed. And it was sort of a, a superficial cut, but it was a man in Canada and he was uh, hiking alone in the Quebec wilderness on a trail, unarmed. And he came face to face with an upright canine. Looked like exactly like a wolf except walking on its hind legs. And he was so panicked, he kind of dodged at the same time the creature tried to lunge past him. And he, in retrospect, he said he didn't feel that it was trying to attack him or it could have just, you know, disemboweled him with one swipe. It was, and these things do have elongated paws is probably the main thing that uh, distinguishes them besides their bipedalism. But it, as it lunged past him, it grazed his uh, side and his hip with one, one of its uh, incisor fangs and left this kind of long, jagged tear in his skin. And he had to go get stitches and he said he told them at the hospital that it was a bear because he didn't think they would believe, hmm. you know, that it was an upright wolf. All right. He did send me a picture of it, and uh, it's consistent with the kind of, of uh, scar that would be made by such an incident. But, there's no, again, there's no way to prove it. You know, you can't prove this is a real scar and this, is, this was made by this creature. But um, he was a professional businessman and, you know, had asked to remain anonymous and you know, didn't didn't want it known who he was or anything like that. But I, I that that to me just would not be the sort of thing you would hope. If you're writing a hoax story, usually there's 
they're a lot different than that. I, I won't go into it, but but that out of all these is the only real injury. Um, I do think it's significant that so many people tell me they felt the creature was angry that they saw it because that's really different than you hear um, people report when they run into, say, a moose or a bear or even a cougar. You know, you may... You may hear them say, well, I, I felt it wanted to eat me or, you know, I felt it was, you know, I was invading its territory. But you don't hear people say, well, I saw this bear and I felt it was mad that I saw it. Bears don't care if you see them. Right. Do you think maybe you know, it's if, a territorial thing, something like that? I do. I, I do think it's all about the territory. I really, really do. That or you can take the opposite tack and, and some of some have suggested that it's a creature that has some kind of psi powers and that it's actually practicing a sort of emotional vampirism where it wants to scare the person to the maximum and then is able to sort of feed on that emotion of fear that comes out. But that gets down to that old essential question, is this a natural animal or is it something from another realm? Exactly. We were talking about that off air. Have you had stories of uh, them being like there and not there, just disappear, so they might be more spiritual kind of thing rather than a physical beast? Have you had encounters or stories like that? Well, I have. And um, again, probably some percentage in the high 90s um, of the reports display no really over spiritual or supernatural actions. It's, it's just that it's something that looks like a very large canine walking and running on its hind legs with an uncanny sort of sentience about it, which, again, is not necessarily supernatural right. because wolves are very intelligent and may have some psi powers. There are actual um, scientific experiments going on about uh, psychic talents of dogs and wolves. But really, walking and running on hind legs is not an impossible thing at all for dogs and wolves. They just don't usually do it unless they are trained to do it or motivated by losing a forelimb or something like that. And I've never had anybody report one of these creatures missing a forelimb. So it, it's just it's, it's really mostly behavior. But there's another smaller subset of sightings that um, they really do unusual things. Uh, usually these are nighttime sightings, although I had one reported in, in broad daylight. But they will appear in people's bedrooms. Um, they will swarm houses at night climbing on the roof swarming all around it they will uh, sometimes their eye shine is bright red instead of the usual yellow or yellow green that you would see with a, a natural canine eye shine sometimes they fade in and fade out i've had one or two report it morphing um you know, but again, this is a smaller subset, and I really relate these. I'm not sure it's the same phenomena at all as the dogmen that that appear to people outdoors um, in natural settings and don't do anything overtly supernatural. Um, I link these other this smaller subset more to the great phantom hounds of Great Britain. They behave and look a lot more like them. They're often um, a very dark black color often with uh, smoother, shinier fur, again, the red eyes, and they do the things that we would consider supernatural. Again, fading in and out, sometimes morphing, um, appearing in a house, poofing away, that kind of thing. 
Well, these have been reported, I mean, worldwide, too. They're in German folklore and all over the world. Are they all interrelated, do you believe, or is it possibly what kind of like Sasquatch or Bigfoot, where there's multiple breeds they think are different types in different countries? Um, I think they're a little different. You know, the, again, most of the Sasquatch, um, primarily when, when they interact with humans, they primarily seem like they're natural animals, although there are, again, there's, there's another subset of behavior. So I, I don't I don't really know. I, I think that there's a difference um, in the things that seem like black phantom dogs. They're no they're seen worldwide and the upright canines are seen worldwide too. So it it becomes rather confusing to try and sort them out, but I generally divide them into these two two subgroups, the things that do overtly supernatural things and the things that really could be just some sort of adapted, subspecies of of, uh, maybe a wolf-dog hybrid. And I say wolf-dog hybrid because oftentimes they have shaggy, darker fur, which you will see in natural wolf packs, but um, some of the latest scientific DNA findings have told us that when you see wolves with the darker fur, it means there has been some interbreeding with dogs. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and so, um, you know, for that reason, maybe dog man is just as accurate as man wolf or wolf man or anything else. Yeah, it's just something, uh, except there's various terms for it, but they're all the same thing, some sort of uh, animal that looks like a person that stands up and acts like a person. Right, but does not have human features. Right. You know, these things, they don't have Bigfoot faces. They have long, often pointed muzzles, very pronounced muzzles, tall, pointy ears, and it's prominent enough that many people compare it to Anubis, the Egyptian jackal-headed god of the underworld, because, you know, the ears are that prominent. And um, this is an interesting point. Um, They also walk digitigrade or on their toe pads, like dogs do, you know. Um, However, their, their feet and paws seem a little bit elongated. When you find a footprint of theirs, it just looks like a giant wolf print usually six to six and a half inches wide. In fact, I just found some, and we have a cast of some from an area site that I've made in the last year, uh, where I was able to track it through a cornfield following a deer, and you could see where it scuffled with the deer, and the deer got away. Um, you know, So they, they don't always bring down their print. You can see the deer got away and went off to woods, and this thing kind of limped off somewhere else. But they were bipedal prints. So I've sort of forgotten my point. <laughs> That's okay. You know, speaking of the tracks, I was actually going to ask you that too. Do you are you finding tracks? You know, physical evidence to you know support this? Yeah, and it really is the main physical evidence because these tracks are bigger than really the biggest timber wolf should be, and we do have an occasional wolf passing through southeastern Wisconsin, but we don't really have wolf packs, uh, you know, living here that that I know of. Just the occasion, we have occasional cougars, we have an occasional bear. Most of the time, they're just sort of passing through or out, you know, young males out finding new territory. But they're very different than Bigfoot. That was the, actually the, po- the point that I was building up to making. Um, they look, like I said, they look like canine tracks. They've got paws, whereas everybody knows what a Bigfoot track looks like. You know, big, broad tracks. Right. Human-like with the straight across toes and, and uh, you know, that flexing center. Of the foot, and we find those too. Uh, and there's one particular area we've been monitoring for the last year. A couple of other investigators and I that has to remain um, private, or we won't have permission to go there anymore. But w- that's where we're find we found a mile's worth of 14-inch Bigfoot prints, and and in a different field across the road, that's where I found 
the six and a half inch dog or wolf prints that, um, and those weren't the first ones we found those. Uh, we had found, found them in another similar location. And I think part of that is they, they go after the same prey. You know, they, um, they both want deer and small game animals. But Bigfoot, you know, does not have ears on top of the head. Um, it may have a somewhat protruding nose at times, although most of the time people describe its face as flat. You don't see the neck. And it's much bigger. Uh, usually the, the dog men are reported as five to seven feet tall. 150 to it at most, the biggest estimate I've ever heard was maybe 250 pounds for a really big one. Whereas Bigfoot is usually seven to, at least out here, maybe nine or 10 feet tall. There are bigger ones, you know, out in the West Coast. But um, they're very different looking. Their legs bend forward at the knee like ours do. They walk flat footed like we do. Um, They have very long arms. They have definite shoulders. They're obviously a primate structure, you know, um, very, very close to human, whereas the dog men or wolf men are pure canine in their uh, anatomy. And I know there are people out there who would like the dog man to be what they call a snout-nosed Bigfoot, and there have been all kinds of crazy rumors and people saying, oh, you know, it's going to be proved that they're a subset of Bigfoot and that kind of thing. And to me... Um, that means that every observer, all these hundreds of, of observers that have reported, and when people get a good look at this creature, they're really sure that it is a canine and not any other kind of a, a creature, that somehow all these observers are wrong and they should have been describing a Bigfoot, you know, or else that there is, t- to me, saying that this has to be a, a subspecies of Bigfoot would be like saying that a hyena has to be a subspecies of chimpanzee because you find them both, you know, on the same continent. You know, or a dingo has to be a subspecies of a kangaroo because you're trying to find kangaroos or chimpanzees and you don't want anything else to interfere with that. I can't imagine any other reason that people would be in, in such denial. But they really are anatomically very distinct from one another. Yeah, well, I mean, I've never even considered the the man wolf or wolf man or whatever in Bigfoot to be anywhere near each other, even though they're both unexplained creatures, but that's as close as it gets as far as I was concerned. Well, if you go by witness report, and, and I'm going strictly by witness reports and, and data, um, because that's really the best evidence w- we have for both of them. Um, although Bigfoot, I think, has real a really good, forgive the pun, track record. Um, you know, we're still building that with the dog man, but um, according to the witness reports, they're describing two completely different creatures. You know, they're just not, you know, a, a wolf is not a great cat. You, you can't, you just can't say because we're seeing them both in the woods and they both stand upright and are furry that they must be the same thing. You know, that's just um, wishful thinking in my book. You know, actually, the, the, the werewolf or, you know, Man wolf or whatever in Bigfoot and all those. There's quite a few sightings in Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin. This area here. Uh, are you finding that the case in your reports too? Or are you getting these, you know, from everywhere? Well, they do come from everywhere. And uh, my latest book, Real Wolfman: True Encounters in Modern America, I think really brings that home uh, more than any other. Because for the first time, I'm I'm getting sightings in California, 
and extending the range down into Texas. Um, Oklahoma is actually almost turning into kind of a hot spot. But I've got a map of major sighting areas in that book. And if you look, you can notice that most there are more sightings east of the Mississippi than west. That may be partly because these things are almost always found near water and near cover, you know, and there's a lot more water and cover um, east of the Mississippi. It also might be because for reports to happen, you need people seeing the creatures, and there's a much greater population east of the Mississippi. So it may also be that. But then you look a little closer, and you can see that the greatest cluster of hot spots are around the Great Lakes area, not just Lake Michigan, but um, Erie and, you know, on up towards New York State. And I don't know if this is because that's, you know, we're a great opportunity for water and because a lot of, you know, rivers um, are connected to the Great Lakes Waterway um, or whether it's because there were originally prairies running through this area and, and perhaps in my mind, this is totally speculative and not not a scientific theory by any means, but I've often thought that it would make sense that wolves on prairie lands would find it expedient to stand up and look around once in a while because then you could see if there were deer coming or other predators competing. And that furthermore, once you were up, if you made a kill and you were finding that, um, and maybe this just happened to a few that originally had mutated longer um, paws that made it easier to balance than for most canines, that you could pick up the carcass or parts of the carcass and carry it away um, in your forelimbs, or if it's even in your mouth, you'd be up off the ground. Whereas if you're dragging something on the ground, you know, the nearest uh, other hunter of, of whatever kind could come and, and uh, drag it away from you. So, and, and then once your forelimbs were freed for other tasks, you would develop more, um, you know, brain connections to do other things. And that might help explain the idea that people, most witnesses have that these things are more intelligent than most wild creatures that they have the ability to kind of suss out humans and sort of predict our actions and um, remain extremely elusive. So that that's another possible connection to the Great Lakes. Again, I can't prove it. I don't claim to be a scientist, but just speculating and taking the data and um, the observed behaviors of these creatures, that's kind of what I come up with. Didn't the American Indians, too, they, they had quite a few legends about the, the Wolfman or whatever, too, where it, I think all the different tribes had something about that, didn't they? Um, everyone that I've talked to, you know, and um, I've, I've been looking for some really older um, Native American proof, you know, of the legends. And right. place um, out west, I'm thinking of it's Utah, called Atherton Canyon that has been uh, an archaeological site where there are lots of pictographs. And um, they've actually found some very old pictographs of uh, a wolf hat society, which implies that there were people um, at least using the wolf as a totem animal, perhaps um, trying to sort of use ritual to synthesize its hunting skills into their own or who knows, it might also have uh, many of the um, shamans from from these different uh, first people, first nations, have traditions of shape-shifting into other animals. 
and that they may have well have had this idea about the wolf that would have been, you know, cunning, beautiful to see, great hunter. Um, you know, you can see all that kind of thing. But I have pictures of that uh, pictograph in, in my new book. And I have made it a point to talk to el tribal elders. And uh, sometimes I've been lucky enough to find one who's an elder and an anthropologist. And what I hear from many of them, not all, because they're not uniform, you know, across the United States. But I've, I've heard more than once that um, the dogmen and the Bigfoot, they believe are both spirit animals that when they are here on this earth they conform to all our laws most of them anyway and are fully physical and corporeal they need to eat protein in order to um, stay energized and, and do what they need to do but they know how to find the portal back to the spirit world which perhaps in modern terms we might call uh, another dimension you know, it's very, very parallel to that idea of, of uh, multiple dimensions and creatures being able to travel between dimensions. So, and that actually makes a lot of sense and explains how both types of creatures remain so elusive um, and why you don't find bodies of Bigfoot. Um, I think if you found a body of the dog man, you just think you had a big dead wolf and you, people may have found these. Well, that's true and, because it would ju it, you'd never know it walked upright if you didn't really pay attention. Right. I mean, unless it died standing, you know, in a perfectly upright stretch, and even then you just think, well, it contorted, you know, in death throes or something. You know, even if you saw it looking like it was standing up and just fell straight back over in a dead faint, you still really couldn't prove that it was it was bipedal. Uh, because, again, they don't have human features. You know, you, you just don't see. They don't look like the cartoon werewolves. They really, really don't. And um, that is a giveaway. I've had a couple of people that, I think we're hoaxing that showed me their sketch because I do ask people to draw witness sketch. Usually this is unprompted. They just send me the, the drawing and it's something I can see they've copied from a comic book, you know? Okay. Well, do you ever get any photo evidence? I mean, these encounters are, certainly aren't planned, so you don't have your camera ready, but have you got any cases where you've got photos of them? Nothing that I can say proves, yeah, this is a dog man, you know? I think it would almost have to be a video um, of a little bit of some duration with really good reference points behind it and seeing the creature from several vantage points. Um, I do think it would be harder to fake. You, it's, it's really hard to put a human in a dog suit and have it look like um, a canine really rather than a human in a dog suit because their forelimbs are so much spindlier on the ends and they walk on their toe pads and you can't you just can't duplicate that look of walking on on the toe pads that that they have uh, and and just the the muzzle the way all that's formed right just it's very very different from a human but i just have people to send me pictures and there are intriguing shots and things that look dog-like and um you know maybe if if i'd seen the creature took that shot i'd know for sure to myself that i had a picture of it, but it wouldn't necessarily prove it to anyone else. It's true. Plus, you never know when people send you photos and stuff, too. You have no idea of if it was staged, set up, or any any of the back history on it, unless you actually were there and did it yourself. And most of the ones, to be honest, most of the ones that people send me um, look more like pareidolia to me, where which is the 
condition of the human mind that wants to see an animate subject in light and shadow, you know, and we're, we're just hardwired to look for animal faces and human faces in light and shadow. And, um, you know, I, I'm really good at that. For, I don't know if it's because I'm trained as an artist or what, but I've got those kind of sprayed bumpy ceilings in my house, you know, and I can lie in bed and any given morning I can open my eyes and see a different face or creature, you know, in, in the bumpy ceiling. Exactly. Uh, I, I know a lot of that too because I'm in the paranormal research and people are constantly sending me photos of ghosts and creatures and this and that. And my gosh, most of the time, you know, you can explain it, but the human mind is geared to see faces, and it does some things. And some people are quite convinced, as I'm sure you know. If you tell them it's not, they they get downright mad at you. Right. You know, I actually have no way to prove, in most cases, that it isn't some kind of creature. But you can't prove it one way or the other. It it just works both ways. That's why I think it's going to have to be a video, uh, at least several seconds long, showing it in several positions with good. Um, background that you can compare its size and uh, that sort of thing, and it would be nice if it also had backup correlating witness reports. So, and I just haven't seen anything like that. And and I keep saying it's been 20 years. I've been waiting. <laughs> Nobody wants to see the first real one more than I do, but you know I just can't lend my stamp. Well, and a lot of people feel that same way, and I and I understand it. And I think that's one reason why that hoax that came out of Michigan about uh, the so-called Gable film. Oh, yeah, that, that old one. It had such staying power, and so many people really wanted to believe. And the Gable film is an interesting study. Um, I was one of the first persons the perpetrator notified. Uh, they notified me and several other investigators, hoping we would say, yes, this is the real dog man, because then, you know, they would have something valuable and, and would have it validated by field researchers. And none of us did. Nobody said, yeah, I think you got the real thing here. And my comment was, and, and it was well made, and for those who haven't seen it, um, it was made with very old um, 70s filmmaking equipment, even the old scratchy film. It used uh, 70s artifacts. It was very carefully put together to look like it was about 40 years old. And it supposedly was found in a film canister at a, an estate sale, and it had the, the name Gable on it, and that's why it was called the Gable film. And then it was uh, supposedly handed off to Steve Cook, who was a DJ in Traverse City, and who happens to be the man who wrote um, the legend about the Michigan Dog Man, which he later found out many people then believed that this was, uh, you know, an actual, or, or, or they, they believed that it had happened to them and we re re started reporting actual dog man encounters. Right. He did not expect to happen. Um, but the truth was that after some years, the sales were down for his CDs of the legend, uh, which took to his credit, he was donating the proceeds, at least a part of them, to an animal shelter, you know, so it wasn't personal. But somebody had made this, a man who lives in the Manistee National Forest of Michigan, had made this, um, he, he, and he's an old film buff, had made this thing and was um, presented it to Steve Cook to use to revive the dog man legend. And when he made it, it was sort of made as a joke. He actually had a spoiler at the end where he's, he stood up after charging the camera in a ghillie suit. That's what this thing actually was. Right waved at the camera with glasses on. And what happened was um, Steve Cook edited out that part and then put it out there at, with this fake um, 
provenance or history and was trying to pass it off as a real thing, hoping to revive sales of the legend. And that's exactly what he told me several years later after it was finally all, all discovered. But um, this went on for a couple of years. It was really making the rounds online. And there was a second film that purported to show, um, I should back up, in the first film, what it showed was what looked like a very blurry, pointy-eared creature charging the camera on all fours, I might add, which, you know, again, wouldn't point it to being a dog, man. It could have been anything. Right. Then you see these uh, a close-up of what looks like um, huge canine teeth devouring the camera. That was the first film. Right. Yeah, I remember that one. That was kind of creepy, actually. Creepy. Now, and my at the time was, um, it's interesting, probably worthy of study to find out what it is, but why would you call it a dog man? You know, it doesn't stand up or do anything. I, I don't see where you'd call it a dog man. Well, then the second film came out a couple of years later that was supposed to be sort of a continuation where it looked like the upper torso of, of a man with his insides hanging out um, was lying on the ground face down and then what were supposed to be state troopers investigating the scene as if this was the person that had been holding the camera, you know, and right. then he was in and uh, these were his remains. And it was in the investigation of this by the uh, Monster Quest show that um, Mr. Cook confessed the whole thing and the maker of the film confessed that they both, you know, kind of colluded to make this hoax film. And it was, the hoax was totally exposed. I went with them uh, to Michigan and was able to interview the filmmaker. I've got my own photos of all his equipment and everything, just which I took just in case somehow it didn't make it onto TV. But I, I have them and, and have published some of them in my new book. Um, and also was the interviewer, for Steve Cook to make his confession. And do you know, there are still people who believe that those films were real. And Actually, I was just going to say that. I go, that's still got a life of its own. People are still fighting tooth and nail that that's 100% legit. The whole the Monster Quest season four finale episode shows plainly all of those. And, you know, and I saw them with my own eyes. He's got vintage 70s snowmobiles. He's got a vintage 70s truck that was used. Um, he did research on the Internet to get the exact design of the badges that state troopers would wear back then and uh, the, the scene where the man is lying on the ground. And when I first saw it, I said, some guy, I immediately said, some guy dug a hole. I'm just naturally suspicious. Some guy dug a hole, uh, stood in the hole, and then they stuck pig guts or something in his shirt to make it look like that. Well, it wasn't pig guts. It was even worse than that. It was a big pile of spray foam from one of those spray sealant cans right? that he then sprayed with pink and orange paint to look like guts. And it was very realistic. It was surprisingly realistic. And I would see on forums where people were writing in saying, well, obviously, you know, I can see where this is the spleen and the <laughs> attaches to the, you know, the coccyx and this and that. And um, people were just, they wanted to believe so badly, you know, and that, and some of them still do. And I don't know if they think that Monster Quest, you know, coerced these men into confessing and the confessions were fake and, you know, it really happened or, or what. But believe me, folks, it was, it was an all and out, all in all, out and out 
hoax. An admitted hoax, too, by the people that did it. So, I mean, it's it's legitimately debunked. Confessed, confessed by <laughs> a national TV. You just don't nail a hoax any better than that. No. What about that? What was that one a while ago? Bigfoot was in the freezer. You remember that one? That was, was that just last year or something where they claimed they had Bigfoot and he was stuck in their freezer? But yeah, that was that was a few years ago already. And one of those guys is still around, you know, trying to make claims and stay in it. But, you know, that was another one. I That was another one that I just refrained from comment because it just did not look real to me. <laughs> exactly. So of all this you've done, what... Uh, What's your favorite or what's your best case or how about personal? I mean, have you encountered one yourself? Um, well, of the dog man, I, I was uh, actually on site in Michigan uh, the filming for the first show with several witnesses who had seen two different creatures on a very isolated road um, near Reed City, which is kind of in the Manistee National Forest, which is a million acres and is a real hotbed for both Bigfoot and Sasquatch, excuse me, both Bigfoot and Dogman sightings. And we were staking out this area where it had been seen. It was 2.30 in the morning. It was still 95 degrees. There were swarms of mosquitoes. There was a storm coming. You know, it was just uh, this crazy atmosphere. And we were surrounded by thick brush. So any human who was trying to hoax us in say a wolf suit or something would have sweated to death and or and been crazy and besides we were seeing something with green yellow eye shine in the bushes every once in a while something was running just outside the um the light of our spotlight that we had sh- shining down the road you know and of course the history channel cameraman was prowling about um i was standing right by the the van the the history channel van and heard something that sounded exactly like a huge dog shaking out wet fur about 30 feet away from me. Wow. I happened to glance down toward the end of where the sh- spotlight was shining, and I saw something run across the road just outside the edge, but the spotlight caught its fur just for a, a second or two. And what I saw was something spine covered with gray fur. It was upright, and... Within a second or so, it had blotted out a seven-foot-tall reflective road sign that happened to be right there. So I may have seen the spine of a running dogman, but one of the they had seen two different in, individual dogmen. One was they described as seven feet tall and gray, and the other one they had said was about six feet tall and dark furred. So that would be my closest encounter that I know of with a dogman. And that was actually with Monster Quest. You were with them when that happened then? Right, and of course, the cameraman was looking the other way. Well, naturally. <laughs> all over within, you know, if you don't, it's all over within a second. Yeah, and that was weird because almost none of that footage that we that we filmed out at this location was used because somehow the film retained the dates and timestamp in white on the bottom of it, and there was no way to know that when you were looking at it, you know, as you were filming. It was just one of these weird film snafus, and I had a bunch of film taken on my nice camera. Some of it was video. And the camera disappeared right off the seat of the History Channel van. And there was nobody around. I w- and I'm, I was staying within a few feet of the van most of the time. And there's no way anybody could have opened one of those doors and shut it without my having heard it or noticed. And there was nobody else out there. You know, there just wasn't. That's creepy. 
so mysterious. Nobody could figure out. We all we spent you know twenty minutes combing the ditches just in case, and it had completely disappeared. I had set it on the passenger side seat, so um, you know the production company actually bought me a new replacement camera because the cameraman said, "Yeah, we just couldn't possibly explain where that camera went." It was just bizarre. So the, not only was the, the uh, professional film ruined, my camera with my own little videos was gone. Well, maybe the dog man is uh, or a lot smarter than we give him credit for. He knew you had him, and uh, he just reached in there and grabbed that. Jokingly say the dog man ate my camera. <laughs> yeah, how many people can say that legitimately? Yeah, well, I say joking. There's no way anybody could explain it. No, that's pretty. I mean, and the, the odds of actually seeing that when you're with a film crew out there, I mean, my gosh, that things like that just don't happen. It's usually when you're by yourself least expecting it, not when you're out there with a big crowd. Right. And it, and it, well, it wasn't a big crowd. It was three witnesses, me and the cameraman. Oh, okay. And we were pretty um, quiet. You know, we were just staying on the road, being quiet. And um, the we were near a small, once abandoned uh, schoolhouse that was being rehabbed but the owner wasn't there very often, and it had a motion sensor light on it. And that light would, every now and then, just go off. But we never, and we'd hear something, but we could never see it. You know, it was, it was a very creepy situation. Have you found, or is this one of them, are there hot spots where you found there seems to be a lot more activity than other places? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I don't know if that's just because, you know, they roam around and find certain areas to their liking and stay and exploit the resources or um, or what. But another thing that I always look at, uh, and I, it, it's grown increasingly eager, easier to do this with the advent of Google Earth, is I first look at all the natural features around any reported sighting. And there's always water. There's With Dogman, there's often cornfields or woods or that sort of cover. But I also look for um, what I call cultural artifacts or human um, human-made environmental factors, such as graveyards, churches, crossroads, um, military installations. These seem to crop up time and time again more often than they should. Um, and strangely enough, even though the natural-looking dog man appears um, more often at these sorts of places than just out, you know, in in odd spots. Um, these are the same places where you find greater incidences of black phantom dog sightings in Great Britain and other European countries. You wouldn't really think that uh, that would have anything to do with that, but that's that's kind of intriguing. And I know you were telling me off air, too, that graveyards seem to have a higher concentration of these kind of sightings, too. Do, for both, for both creatures. You know, um, I've been tracking Bigfoot sightings in southeastern Wisconsin for many years quietly. Nobody seems very interested to my great surprise because I think it's fascinating that there are so many really credible sightings within a three, four county area um, that I have dating back to the 60s with known named witnesses and some of them are daylight. A lot of them are just are, are couples, you know, so there's two at once that have seen them. And when I go through those sightings, um, a couple of recent ones were both almost spot-on sites of ancient burial mounds, Native American burial mounds that you can't see any longer, but I found them in an old survey book um, or, or an old survey that, that actually was platted out and, and added to a, a newer book about archaeological areas. Um, another one, the creature was uh, seen kind of sp- between a church and a cemetery. 
you know, I just, uh, there's there's another one um, that was seen in an old Pioneer Cemetery right on the state line between Wisconsin and Illinois. So I'm seeing some of the same things with Bigfoot. Um, that's kind of, I, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? You know, that's kind of unusual. you have any thoughts on why that happens? Well, you can, again, I always play my own devil's advocate. I try and look at it from both sides. Right. One, one is that, you know, who knows what kind, maybe these sites are located where they are because from way back people felt a certain geomagnetic disturbance or connection or a spiritual connection um, and that some people think that the dogmen, for instance, are spirit guardians either set up long ago by um, Native American shamans to guard these places or that they're some sort of earth spirit manifestation uh, that kind of comes forth of its own accord to to uh, guard these places. Um, so, you know, there's that aspect. Or you can look at it the other way and say, well, cemeteries are usually very deserted. Um, so you can see where a creature might, and, and the headstones afford hiding places, so it might be a place they they sneak through on the regular route. And water, either um, spirit creatures uh, are believed to go to the other world through natural springs, according to Native American belief, or a carnivore needs a lot of water to digest protein, so you can see it that way. And then roadsides, um, well, naturally, it's easier to run along a road than, you know, crash your way through a forest, a dense forest, and these animals aren't dumb. So you, you can, I can always see a natural explanation and a supernatural explanation, which is very frustrating. I'd really like it to be one way or the other, and people would like me to decide one way or the other, but... Um, not knowing, I really feel that it's intellectually dishonest to say I know what it is, when in fact, how could I know what it is? You yeah. know, unless I have it. Exactly, that's one of the key things I say. Anyone that says they know exactly is kind of full of it because none of us know exactly. You may know that you know inside of you, but if you don't have any way to prove it, you know, it just doesn't do any good to say that. Have you ever, I'm, I'm guessing you did, but have you ever set up like infrared cameras, you know, in locations you know are hot spots and just let them run for weeks at a time? Yeah, um, my husband bought me a trail cam for Valentine's Day. <laughs> yeah, how romantic, huh? <laughs> you know, it was the thing I wanted more than anything. And I've done this before with other groups that had their own, but, you know, since I've had my own, I've been setting it around different places. And I haven't been too lucky, um, you know, I get little things to tell me I've got it set up right and that sort of thing. I have I have a beautiful some beautiful shots of um, a pit bull stealing the Bigfoot bait. Yeah. <laughs> I had Bigfoot beating him to it, I would have gotten the Bigfoot. But I keep trying. You know, it can take a long time to do that. Exactly. So I, I actually have some really good high-tech video equipment. I'd be more than willing to let you use for a while, help you set up, and you could run it out there for weeks, and it it might help. Well, you'll have to make a trip up here, and we'll I'll, I'll uh, show you the secret places, and we can set that up. That would be great. We're getting near the hour point. I know you told me you're really uh, pushed for time today. Do you want to, uh, you have a website you want to give out, or, you know, talk about any of your books, or anything you'd like to get to in closing? Well, if anybody is wanting to get into this topic, I really think that um, my new book, Real Wolfmen, True Encounters in Modern America, is a good one to start with because what the publisher asked me to do was revisit the beginning of the phenomena, um, what I considered the best incidents from my first three books. Uh, I think I failed to mention the one titled The Michigan Dog Man, 
comma, werewolves and other unknown canines across the USA. So I have the best of those, plus all the new ones that have come in. There's some just startling things like the one I call the Doberman Lynx that has shown up in several locations. Um, a really remarkable incident that occurred to a middle-aged couple in Maine involving five upright canines in, in their yard at night, um, things like that. So it gives the overview, it gives the best of what I've received over 20 years, and then the very latest. So uh, I really recommend that that book. If you're interested in just Wisconsin, I have another book too called Monsters of Wisconsin uh, from Stackpole Press that's widely available. Um, and that runs the gamut. It has uh, you know, a lot on Wisconsin Bigfoot, um, many things that aren't, aren't published other places, a lot on the dog man, and then a lot of the just the really weird things, uh, the man bat, um, other strange creatures that many people aren't aware of, even down to little green men in Wisconsin. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> the little green men, you got to end with those. My website that has a list of my book things is lindagodfrey.com. It's a WordPress. You can read about my own Bigfoot encounter on my blog uh, that I pretty sure it was a Bigfoot encounter anyway, and uh, see my about page for the book list and my calendar of events, which I need to update. Um, <laughs> and uh, just check around there. And you can also look on the bios. You can find a, uh, my email if you want to report something. And yeah, if you saw a dog man or a Bigfoot, please write. Okay, well, Linda, that's been fascinating and really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to talk with us. It's a blast. All right, that was Linda Godfrey. We hope you enjoyed tonight's show. We'll be back next Friday from 10 to 11 on theedgeonair.com, or you can check us out every Sunday right here on ufo-info.com. See you next week.